3: Welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
2: And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us. In the studio with us today, it's Alison Rudd. Down the line, it's Ollie Kay.
3: It's been a weekend where shocking events off the field have overshadowed football. On Saturday night, after Leicester City's game with West Ham, the Leicester owner, Vishay Srivadhanaprava, was among those to lose his life when a helicopter carrying him and four others crashed outside the King Power Stadium. Under his stewardship, Leicester, despite odds of 5,000 to 1, won the Premier League title in 2016, perhaps the most incredible league title victory in the history of English football. Henry Winter spent Sunday at the King Power Stadium and joins us now. Um, Henry, the, the city of Leicester is in mourning and, and he really did have a special bond with the players and the fans.
4: Yeah, and it wasn't just the city, it was the whole county and it stretches beyond that, you know, around the world, obviously to Thailand, where he's was born and where his business empire is. So, no, I mean, it's, it's huge. What I found particularly interesting and, and moving yesterday and much the, the outpouring of emotion. All very quiet, all very respectful, no-one raised their voices, I mean really all you could hear at times was just the sort of the rustle of the, the cellophane around the, uh, around the flowers, um, but the outpouring of emotion on social media and also people from other clubs turning up and leaving tributes. To say, you know, we're Liverpool, we stand by you. We're Celtic, we stand by you. You know, we're Nottingham Forest, Wolves, local rivals, Derby County. You know, fans from those clubs. And I think there was a was a broader element here, is that people appreciated they almost wanted Vichai to be owner of their club. And you know, Leicester. You know, he he chose Leicester, mm-hmm. and we all know the extraordinary eight-year journey that. That they've been on, particularly with the, with the title. So I just think he, he he struck a chord with with fans throughout football as well as within the city of Leicester.
3: He was also so emotionally invested in Leicester, as you, as you say, Henry. He donated millions, didn't he, to the to the Leicester Infirmary and to Leicester University.
4: He did. He was actually talking to a couple of the uh, the, the local radio reporters who cover the club on a, on a, on a daily basis, new V Shire, letter city fans themselves. And, and you know, they just talked to the, you know, the, the, the little things whenever he would, whenever he saw them, he would shake their hands and wish them well, ask after their family. He was quite sort of almost old school paternal in that sense. And, and that sort of emotional largesse, ex, you know, extended to financial largesse, you say with 2 million to the, uh, to, to help the children's hospital, um, a million pounds to the university and just all sorts of things like, you know, the, the fans talked about what he, he did for them on his birthday. There'd be sort of free beer and you know, it might seem little things, but in an age when owners increasingly are distanced from fans and fans feel increasingly disenfranchised, shy was trying to reverse that trend, not because he wanted to be different from other owners, but because he was just wanting to be him. And that involved, being community-minded, um, and so look, the whole city of Leicester has has, has has lost a great man. But I think also football has as well, and someone who I think certain other owners could have learned from.
2: I was struck by when I heard the news by the the parallel with another uh, helicopter crash. I think roughly twenty years ago, um, involving Matthew Harding mm-hmm. at Chelsea, who, who had also poured enormous amounts of money at the club was also very much invested in the club, going to the pub with fans before games and stuff like that. And who also had a tremendous impact as well because certainly without Matthew Harding, there would have been no sort of Huddle, Hulet, Viali at, at Stamford Bridge and there probably would have been no Roman Abramovich either. Alison, signalling to me. I just
1: that I wrote his book. I was going to write his. He asked me, Matthew Harding, I know, knew him really well, and he asked me to help him ghost his biography and then a few months later he died in that helicopter crash and I decided out of a sense of duty perhaps I would carry on writing it. It was a really difficult book to write because he was um, like so many chairman of football clubs his non-football activity was quite mysterious and maybe slightly dodgy as well so lots of people were like you know trying to piece together how he got his money together and what sort of business money was and is... was it? it was reinsurance but it was complicated it wasn't just straightforward and the world of reinsurance is complicated so I had to put together um, a picture of what makes somebody want to be become the impetus behind a club that they love but yes it's it's similar similar in that the fans of Chelsea had just started to really warm to Matthew Harding. They didn't get a chance to know him well enough, but he was magnanimous. He was the opposite of Ken Bates, who he ended up being in a rivalry with. And Ken Bates didn't like him at all. But Ken Bates recognised that Harding's cash gave the club breathing space and you're quite right that breathing space was necessary for a big billionaire to come in in the form of Roman Abramovich and and buy the club if if they hadn't had that breathing space it might not have been such an attractive proposition to Abramovich at all.
3: I mean you only have to to read the messages on on social media from fans and from players to, to just realize the impact that he made at the club um the theme of his big heart, his generosity, the the love that everyone had for him, it just shines through, from what everyone's written. Kasper Schmeichel called uh, Srivardhana Prava an inspiration. He said the owner apparently told him uh, when he signed for Leicester in twenty eleven, when they were in the Championship, that they would be in the Champions League within six years. And and Ollie, he was proved absolutely right.
0: Yeah, he was. And if, if you look at if you look at the period from from when they took over, as so many new owners upon taking over. Um, Taking over clubs do. They, you could tell that there were sort of perhaps agents pulling the strings at, at an early stage, and 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 sort of they were being influenced to some extent by by people they knew or or or, or whatever. Newsome appointed Svennur and sort of Eriksson, which I think is a, is a symptom of that. And Ericsson did a fairly average job, um, and then I think they they, they, they appointed football people, they they had people like John Ruckin advising them. If you look at the decisions they made over that period, the decisions were so good. It's not just appointing Nigel Pearson, it's keeping faith with Nigel Pearson through some difficult times early on. Keeping faith with him after they lost out in the playoffs heartbreakingly when I think the the, the default mode of a lot of new chairmen would have been to sack him and, and so on. Then Take them up the next season, stick with them all of that season, and then it was a difficult situation where, for reasons off the pitch, Nigel Pearson ended up out of a job. Then they made a decision to hire Claudio Ranieri, which was ridiculed at the time, widely ridiculed, and it was it was so inspired. And if you look at the, the the way the football club has been run, it's not perfect. They've made a few mistakes here and there, but their decisions they make. Have been very, very good. Even the the young players that they've targeted, perhaps the last two transfer windows, not not the one immediately post title when they made a few mistakes, but the, the, the last two um, the last two summers they've made really good appointments. And I think of of all of that sort of middle tier of clubs, I think they are the ones who have who have not just with the outlier of the of the title winning season, but but they, they they've made good decisions. They've invested. Ambitiously, aggressively, but but intelligently, uh, a, a lot of the time in, in in young players. I think everything they've, they've done, even on the pitch, as well as all off the pitch, which is stuff which is terribly important um, as well, which Henry referred to. They've just made good decisions, and and they're clever people, not so hands on that they were afraid to take advice from more experienced people in in football circles, but also not so aloof that, that, that they were prepared to be hands-off and just let the club run itself like so so many um, owners do. It was always very hands-on, but in a way that, that ensured that expertise was influencing their decisions. And I just think if you look at the owners, not just throughout the Premier League and throughout English football, there are not many, there really are not many, that would prompt this level of outpouring from from their fans. I think there are a lot of owners who are tolerated, there are a lot of owners who are reviled and these guys genuinely were loved by Leicester fans and admired I think by, by other clubs fans um, and I think it's, it is it is just a tragedy, um, it's above all a tragedy on a, on a human level and for the families concerned and we should never lose sight of that but as a football podcast and, and about football, it's, it's a terrible loss to Leicester City Football Club and, and to the Premier League as a whole
3: We're joined now by the Asia editor for The Times, Richard Lloyd-Parry. And and Richard, tell us about the impacts of this news in in Thailand and and across Asia as well.
5: Well, certainly in Thailand, it's huge news, of course. Um, And I think people are are very shocked. Uh, I mean, Mr. Vichai, uh, in in his home country, of course, was known not not only as the, the owner of Leicester City, but as one of the country's biggest and richest businessmen. He made his fortune running essentially had a monopoly on selling duty-free in thailand's biggest airports which in a uh, you know a tourist destination as big as that you could imagine it's very good very big business indeed and he had uh shares in airlines he, he had a uh, he owned i think a, a belgian uh, football team uh, but leicester's spectacular success in 2016 uh, was of course huge news in in thailand and thais were very proud of mr vichai um, Thailand is a football-crazy country, although it's domi- and they do love the, the premiership, although it's dominated by uh, Liverpool to some extent, but Manchester United above all. But you know, the success of this team, owned by a Thai, did uh, encourage quite a lot of Thai fans to defect from Manchester United to Leicester. So you know, it's a huge and terrible shock.
2: And of course, we should also um, remember that uh, two pilots um, and, uh, and two members of uh, of his staff were also were also and Of course, thoughts go out to their to their families as well. Now, all around, it was a pretty awful Saturday, uh, and it began with the news of the former uh, England and uh, Spurs manager Glenn Hoddle collapsing um, at BT Sports Studios on Saturday morning after suffering a heart attack. As we record this, um the reports are that he's in uh, a serious condition but is is responding to treatment. He's obviously somebody who uh who's a big voice within within football. Um Matthew Syed wrote very eloquently about sort of his time in uh, in the 1980s. I think a lot of us grew up with him being so different from the rest of English football. I, Henry, can you talk a bit about 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 Glenn in your experience?
4: Well, if he was French, Spanish, Italian, you know, he would have had probably 130, 140 caps. I mean, he was wasted by England. He was just, you know, he was a remarkable footballer from an incredibly young age playing for his father's Sunday league team. And I I did a, when I wrote a book on England a few years back, I sort of, I knew I needed to get Hoddle because he was as a player and as a manager he was a brilliant England manager apart from a fairly key issue with man management but he tactically he was brilliant he played players in the right place he had Rio Ferdinand sort of emerging he played skulls in his best position he had the right balance England at 98 well the, well, the Italy game beforehand to qualify tactically got it absolutely spot on with the way he used Ian Wright as a lone run uh, front runner, wearing the Italians down. He's brilliant there to get the draw they needed to qualify. And then out of the World Cup itself, even in adversity against Argentina, when Beckham foolishly got sent off, England were terrific. The way that Glenn with his tactical nous, got Michael Owen and Alan Shearer playing out. Well, Wide where Beckham had been, and you know, checking in turns to, to shuttle up and down the flank. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, really, really good manager. Uh, but just as a player, you go back to you know those very early ages when it was the Dark Ages in English football, and there were dinosaurs roaming across the pitch. And and, and Glenn, he, he he told me about what it was like when he was playing for his father Sunday and He was about sort of. 13, 14 with this sumptuous skill and he was sort of dribbling past people and these, you know, these real hard ethics types, you know, would just say to him, do that again and we're going to break your leg. And he would carry on and people, you know, the the whole Glinda thing as he was slightly derided, you know, he was, he was tough because he had to be tough because he had all that skill and he knew he was going to get nailed. The thing about Glenn Hoddle is that people listen to him on the, television i know he divides opinions if you sit down with Glenn Hoddle, you have an hour in his company just talking football it, it, he's, it's just enlightening i mean i've long talked to the fa and as ever with these things fail to try and get him to have some role at the heart of st george's park to bring his vision alongside a more nuts and bolts admin man like dan ashworth who's now leading on and i think it's been it's been very encouraging in, in in recent months where gareth southgate invited him back into the fold. You saw Harry Maguire tweeted that picture of the weekend about how proud he was to have met Glenn Hoddle. Hodwell going into the dressing room, passing you know, the shirts on to some of the new players as well. You know, he is... English football hasn't used Glenn Hoddle properly, and he really has been the prophet in his own land, but ignored, which is which is sad. And you can see that, you know, the, the Sunday papers getting been proud with all their... With all their sort of comments and observations on what a magnificent football man he is, and we should remember that, but we also should remember that the FA and English football and England managers didn 't treat Glenn Hoddle properly.
2: I think from all of us here, um, we want Glenn to get well real soon and, and to see him back out there.
3: the field. It was a fine afternoon at Turf Moor for a couple of English football's brightest prospects. Chelsea ran out 4-0 winners at Burnley on Sunday. Ross Barkley shining again. He scored for the third Premier League game in a row, the first English player to do that for Chelsea since Frank Lampard five years ago. Oli, you were there. How impressive is Barkley right now?
0: Extremely impressive, yeah. I mean, I think people were guilty of forgetting just how good a player he had he had been in, in his sort of breakthrough couple of seasons at, at, at Everton. And, and perhaps, um, you know, if you go back to the 2013-14 season, he was so good for Everton under, under Roberto Martinez. And I think because Martinez would, would lay it on very thick and compare him to Michael Ballack or Iniesta or, or, or whoever he happened to be um, speaking in, in the way Martinez speaks, I think people sort of didn't take him as, as seriously as they should have. Been. But he's always had this, a real talent. I don't think he really had kicked on over the last two or three years under different managers, under Cooman and, and and obviously the injuries at Everton last season, then the, the move to Chelsea, which didn't work out at all initially. But I think what we're seeing now is, is a young player who has still got a lot of development to do, but, but has got so many of the raw materials and so many good technical qualities. And we're seeing him being indulged and trusted and encouraged by by a manager uh insari who loves that kind of player, loves loves technical players loves energetic technical players in particular and he is thriving he really is thriving i know I know people will talk about it being a uh, you know j- j- just a few games and oh it was only Burnley yesterday but it, it was it was a defense splitting pass against Spain a couple of weeks before that he's it, been very good performances all along he's been weighing in with goals and Although people will look at the goal yesterday uh, as being the, the sort of high point of his, uh, of his performance, I thought the pass, the instinctive sort of control and pass for the first goal um, for Morata, well, it was so it was so quick and it came from Jorginho, Pedro, Canté, then to Barkley, and it was Barkley sort of controlled it and passed it almost in one movement to Morata who, who who scored. It. And it was just a really really good performance. Um, by a player who, who really is thriving. And it's and it's really good to see because if he's on form, I, I, think, he, I think he walks into the England team. I really do.
3: Well, it's certainly very promising for mm. England. Alison?
1: Yeah, no, it's... Um, I think we're going to end up talking about Sarri the way we talked about Pochettino and just helping English players because Sarri said he, he, he's got these young players at Chelsea and some of them we don't even talk about because they're all out on loan or whatever. But he he says... In English football, um, there is technical ability. Don't you know? He, he believes it's there, and and the the physicality and the pace that you were talking about, Ollie. But he says tactically they're a bit behind. And then you think, oh, is that is that true? And then Ross Barkley himself says, "I just wasn't taught. I was just because I had talent. No one taught me how to be tactical." And I mean, it, it is a bit of a crying shame because imagine what would have happened five years ago if someone had said, "Look at that technically gifted young Englishman. What he just needs is a bit more awareness of." what to do with with the teammates he's got and we could have a superstar on our hands it may, 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 might it hasn't come too late for him but it could, it could have been better if it'd come earlier and and if this is the way Sarri is looking at what he's inherited that he can make technically good players better tactically then that and and well for, for whatever nationality they are he's going to be they're going to be blossoming onto the world stage aren't they they're going to be improved players i fi- I find that instructive and refreshing
2: it's funny I think there's a bit of a sliding doors element to this as well in the sense that one of the reasons Barkley has developed so much is that when Sadi came and showed up, uh, uh, you know, his first training session for Chelsea, there were like 10 people there, maybe not 10, there were a few more, but you know what I mean? Like Loftus-Cheek famously was not there because he was, uh, you know, he'd gone, he'd been to the world cup. Mm-hmm. And so Sadi was in a situation, Kovacic wasn't there and returned yet. Um, so he was in a situation where he had to work with um, with what he had. Uh, there was no Conte, obviously. And, you know, and what he found was, God, this guy can really play. This guy's got serious skills. And while I wonder, you know, you, as a manager, you have a finite amount of teaching that you can do. It's, it's sort of like in you know in school where, you know, if you've got a smaller class size as opposed to a larger class size, I do wonder, if there had been no World Cup this summer, whether, you know, how things might have panned out differently, how maybe Barkley wouldn't have had all that one-on-one on, one on one attention early on, which allowed him to develop such a relationship and a trust with Sadie, maybe it would have gone to Loftus-Cheat uh, in, instead. It's it's always odd. And we often don't appreciate the fact that these are human beings who, who build relationships, especially, you know, for guys who, who aren't necessarily considered superstars by their club, but sort of just another guy in the squad, which I think is where, where Barkley and indeed Loftus-Cheek were at the beginning of the summer. I, I wonder about Loftus-Cheek, though. He, he scores a hat-trick in midweek. People were joking about how he wasn't getting in the squad. Ha, ha, ha. Obviously, he gets in the squad this week. He's on the bench. Also, his hazard's not there. Pedro gets injured. He comes on. He scored late. Is that his position, the one he was playing in? Is, is that where Sadi sees him, or was it a case of Perhaps I wanting to shoehorn him into the side just to make sure he kind of got kept the momentum going and he got a, a look at him against real opposition.
0: Yeah, I think it was the latter really. I don't I, I don't think many people would see his position being sort of wide in a front three. Um it was great that he scored and, and he played okay in the second half, but he, he wasn't at the level of Barclay, he wasn't at the level that you would expect of Pedro in that position, or of Hazard or William in that position. I think the reality is that, that they have three Arguably, four players competing for 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 one of the three places in in central midfield, and they're Barkley, they're Kovacic, Loftus Cheek, and and Fabregas. And it's to Barkley's immense credit if he if, if he's the if he's going to emerge as as the one, or even as one of the two um, alternating with with Kovacic. But but Loftus Cheek, I, I mean, it's I found it slightly uncomfortable where, where the other night where people are sort of talking about him. Um, having actually proved he can um he can do it um at, at this level when it when it's a performance um against who was it bat uh, bats Borisov in the europa league you know he would, i i wouldn't have thought that was the greatest performance of his, of his career at the, at the highest level it didn't have to be but he's he's a player who who was in the england squad Last season, for the World Cup, because because he performed to a certain level, and I think the level now required of him to get into Chelsea's, even on Chelsea's bench uh, this season, is probably higher than the level he he had to get to to get into the England squad. I think he's at the wrong club this season. I think it's right that they should view him as a long term prospect. But if if they were to, you know, having signed. Um, Kovacic having reintegrated Barkley uh, um, with Fabregas already and your and and and, and Jorginho, I I think he I think the ideal thing for him at, at 22 is it yeah 22 23 in January would be to be playing week in week out like it was at Paris last season.
2: I, I think sadly perhaps to some degree learned his lesson last season about the lack of the lack of rotation, and I think we might see more of it as people become more comfortable. I think one of the issues, I mean spoken to maybe one or two members of Chelsea's coaching staff is that if you send Loftus Cheek back out and he goes to play, well, like last year with, with Roy Hodgson, does he really develop or does he just kind of play as like, yeah, you're the freewheeling attacking midfielder and, you know, we have Wilf, Wilfred Zaha here and, you know, you get the ball to him and then you shoot from 30 yards out and it's just a totally different experience. It's got, it's got, I mean, and I'm not saying that Hodgson's a bad coach or they play bad tactically. No, but they play tactically the way a team like Crystal Palace should play in their position. So I think there's a dynamic there where from the club's perspective, they're not sure how much benefit he actually gets if if he goes out.
3: But isn't there also the learning off other players and being around other players? So That's the Phil
2: Foden argument. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, there's nowhere Phil Foden could go. Yeah, I'm sure Phil Foden might be good enough to start for, for half the teams in the Premier League. Mm. But... Is that necessarily going to help his development right now, is all he said. I'm not sure.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't
1: stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
3: This season, with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Alison, you were at Craven Cottage on Saturday to to see yet another wayward defensive display from Fulham. But first of all, let's talk about their opponent, Bournemouth. They were 3-0 winners. Uh, They're gate-crashing the top six at present. Uh, They're having their best start to a Premier League season.
1: Yeah, and... uh...
3: Well, God, I hate the phrase deservedly so, but it, it, they they are
1: a very, very well-run team at the moment and it was instructive to compare and contrast with Fulham because, because Bournemouth were everything that Fulham need and don't have at the moment. Bournemouth were incredibly well-organised, efficient, compact, patient. They were so grown up. They were exactly what you um, expect from a team that actually believes they they could break into the top six by the end of the season. There was something very, not arrogant about them, but they knew exactly what they were doing. They, they controlled the tactics of the game. They went there full of confidence, but put in a huge amount of effort. They surprised Fulham with their formation. That was a, a great, a great um, tactical... Piece of genius from Eddie Howe. They went, they went three at the back, and suddenly used pace on the wings in sort of spurts, and Fulham sort of felt, sort of became split. It was, it was, it was instructive to see just the character of the team, and also afterwards, I know people bang on about how much they love Eddie Howe, and you sort of think, really, really, just another manager, but he is so impressive when he. When he talks about the team, he never ever accepts any of it as he never does the me 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 thing. There's no ego there, and there's this young player they signed from Sheffield United called David Brooks. I mean, he's 21, and he looks about 14, but he's 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 in uh, he's in stunning form at the moment. I mean, I hadn't seen him play before. He's remarkable, but Eddie Howe asked about him. He says, oh, no, it's not. we didn't even have to do much video analysis with him. We didn't really have to talk to him about how to play football. He's just a technically gifted guy who's working really hard and buying into what we do here. He's not saying, yeah, I work really hard with him and I identified his talent and I knew what I was buying. He more or less accepts, you know, we, we do we do scout, but we got lucky that we've got somebody here who most importantly to how buys into the fact that you do not score a goal and think you're the bee's knees You come, he says he comes back in early and he wants to learn more and that's what we expect from our players
2: well, so, but then we often hang on managers comments right but we've seen this with Bournemouth before where you know they, sometimes they've spent a lot of money on players and then they haven't worked out other times you know they go back to guys who've been with them a couple of years ago or you know they, they find guys internally like, like Fraser turn out to be phenomenal or you know, you, you think of Lewis Cook, who they spent, I think, a lot of money on when he was very young, and then he basically didn't play for a year. Then he comes in, he becomes an England international. I'm just mystified by what what goes on inside that man's head. And I think actually, and it's great that he's humble. And obviously, I don't think any manager says, "Hey, you know, loft his cheek." Oh, now that you have scored a goal, I really want you to to to, to walk around with swagger and think you're the bee's knees. I mean, everybody's going to preach humility. What I find interesting is I think he just sees the game differently. There's no Josh King, no problem. Callum Wilson, who I think you, you spoke to recently, he, I remember speaking to somebody at the club my, a year and a bit ago, and they're saying, well, he's not the same player since his, s- since his injury. He's also a bit lazy. I don't think he's going to work out here. And now he's back. In vogue, I don't. I just don't understand this man. Like, I, I, what, what he's doing is brilliant, and and it really is remarkable. Because you know, what people forget is, yeah, they've spent a lot of money, but so have many other clubs. And yes, we can go back and say giving Jermaine Defoe all that money was probably not the cleverest thing he's done. But you know, you get some right, you get some wrong, and you look at this on balance, and it's absolutely remarkable that they're even in the Premier League, let alone in the top ten and let alone having done it over, over several seasons.
1: But you say you don't get what's going on in his head. Is he not just somebody who, rather than bemoan the fact it's a relatively small club with a relatively small budget, I mean, there's no such thing as a tiny amount of money anymore, but he's not, he's not working with the big figures and he can't attract someone like Paul Pogba to the club. Rather than wish it was different, he, he's turned it into a positive. It's a sort of twilight world between somewhere like uh, a club that's unfashionable and, and do that sort of create barriers and it's us against the world. He hasn't created that. He's made them a warm, likeable club. There's, there's no sense of us against them. But he's, he's, he's somehow found an identity there that rather than rail against the limitations, he's made every single thing he has an advantage.
2: Yeah, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. But the thing is, along the way... We see this situation where some of the players, they, they always stay at the club, but they kind of come in, they become important, and then they sort of disappear to the margins. I mean, Callum Wilson, I think, is a is actually a really good example of this. You could maybe make a case for, for Lewis Cook as well. I mean, for them to spend that kind of money, right, when they, when they signed him, and it was a lot of money for a young player back then, and he was in, I believe he was an in Under-21 International at the time or whatever else, and then this guy doesn't set foot on the pitch, and what I was told is... Well, you know, he had to learn, learn the ways here and blah, blah, blah. And Andrew Sermon was more productive. For I mean, I don't think Andrew Sermon is, is a good footballer, but he's obviously a good professional and is ideal in many ways for what Bournemouth want. And getting into that mindset and then Lewis Cook plays and then he's a difference maker. You do you know what I'm okay, saying? It's like,
1: okay, that, that, you don't get that. the
2: luxury of that patience many no, times no, at other clubs. So obviously no. Eddie that. which is House why he stayed that.
1: probably because he, he knows he will have the 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 luxury of that time. But he 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 said it again on after the game at Fulham. He said, "I expect." Flair players, wide players, attacking players, I expect them to do their their tracking back and work really hard and be disciplined. Maybe he's just one of those managers who says it but means it. No, but he means it. And he's not under pressure from the owners or the fans or from the fact he might have spent a lot of money to keep playing the player even though he's asking him to track back and he isn't. He will say, you're a great technical player, but until until you learn your role in the team and you're able to be defensive in the way that we we operate you're not coming back in so the player learns he comes back in it's actually quite simple
3: well let's talk about a player you mentioned uh, Callum Wilson who is having a very good season he's been involved in nine goals uh, already five goals uh, and four assists uh, only Eden Hazard has been involved in more
2: Jaden Sancho's having a better season so there <laughs>
3: We're not talking about uh, Borussia Dortmund. We're talking about Bournemouth right now and Callum Wilson. Obviously, we've mentioned that you were there, that you saw the game. Uh, Just how good is Callum Wilson right now? And and bear in mind that you've mentioned Jadon Sancho. We've already spoken (laughs) uh, about uh, Ross Barkley and Ruben Loftus-Cheek in England. Is he someone that should be involved with England as well? Well,
1: Eddie Howe said he has to be on Gareth Southgate's radar right now. And he does, doesn't he? Um, He hasn't had a call-up to the senior squad he's played for the under 21s he's close to being one of those players in unplayable form because certainly and i mean it's you know um, the fulham defence is a mess so maybe that's not the greatest judge of no. <laughs> how effective a striker is at the moment but he was he had them wrapped round his little fingers so, little finger he he was i mean if he if he felt he drew them into fouls they shouldn't have made. He's very good at winning free kicks. I'm not saying he cheats, but he he knows how to go down with the right amount of pressure. He knows how to invite the right amount of pushing and tugging, tripping and so on. He's powerful. He's fast. He's confident. Cool. I mean, if I was Gareth Southgate, I'd certainly. I'd I, just for those. Just for that characteristic, I'd want him around because I think he'd, he'd certainly boy, boy the camp up with with that sort of. When he's playing well, he's got, a, he's got a slight aura about him. He certainly deserves an England call-up.
3: It's time now for some quick hits. And Arsenal were held to a 2 all draw at Crystal Palace, ending their winning streak at 11. Alison Roy Hodgson not happy. How did the match officials miss Lacazette's obvious handball in the build-up to Aubameyang's goal? And should we have retrospective punishment for this sort of thing?
1: Well, they missed... It's not weird that they missed it. It took me six viewings to be absolutely sure it was a handball. It was very quick. If you accept... His arms above his head. No, his oh. arms up, his arms up. It's not It's not absolutely clear that he directs the ball anywhere until you watch it from a certain angle. And then, And then you go from thinking, was that a handball, to thinking... Oh my goodness! That was the cleverest handball I've ever seen in my life because he flicks it into the absolutely perfect place. It's 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 just and with his back to to, to play amazing. But uh, but actually, then you then, you think, is that but then you think
2: if you'd been a defensive player, wouldn't you give a penalty for that, or would you say, oh look, it's entirely accidental? It's not. If if that had been a defender with his arm raised way above his head,
1: if you he were sure to touch the arm. I, d- I think from certain angles it, l- it, it, lo- as it as didn't look like it didn't, look, it like it didn't right. look like it looked like it skimmed beyond his the, the reach of his fingers actually so that's why i'm saying it was hard to see first time in real time it took a few viewings to to see that there might have been contact so I, d- I don't blame the officials at all and as for retrospective action to impose a punishment on him you'd have to accept that he was trying to be very clever and do something with the ball and i'm not sure that we can conclude that and also retrospectively where i mean where do you begin and end it i I'm not keen on too much retrospective stuff because it, it, you could end up with a, a sort of long, long, long list of things and looking at the team sheet for the next match and wondering why on earth all of them are missing because they're all serving suspensions for things that you just can't remember happening. And, yeah, and, uh, don't. But he turns football into bureaucracy, so I'd rather limit that.
2: I agree with you on that, but it would also be Black Gazette knows that he touched the ball. It may not have been intentional, may not have been intentional, but he knows he touched the ball and he knows that his team gained an advantage from it. Because they then scored. I wish we had an environment where people were encouraged to come out and say, "Hey, ref, it was me." You know, simple as that.
3: Well, it's a bit like uh, Kimar Roof for Leeds when uh, he scored the, the equaliser, wasn't it? Was it the equaliser? Are you
2: referencing the Football League
3: again? I am. I am. Yes, but he <laughs> scored. With, he scored with his hand, didn't he, for, for Leeds the other night? And uh, it was only at the end when he said, "Well, if the ref's going to give it, he's going to give it." Yeah,
2: it's fine. It's a wonderful <laughs> attitude to, to engender. But right, then, listen, right. listen if, if, if we're going to do... Granit Xhaka was honest. Granit right.
1: mm-hmm. was honest. Granit Jack is a good person.
2: Manchester United overcome Everton 2-1, and Paul Pogba misses a penalty after a very, 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 very <laughs> long run-up. I was actually tempted to, say, to throw 28 varies in there. It which would have been good. According to our high-tech calculations in the Times, he took 28 steps. <sighs> For this one, according to the BBC, it was merely twenty six. But of course, we all know they have trouble counting. Um, <laughs> the weird thing is, he took a penalty against Brighton this year when he took a mere eight steps. Socrates, of course, the, the legendary Socrates, would often take no steps. Alison, any clever theories on steps and run-ups and whatnot?
1: Well, I, my theory was that he. Missed against Burnley and only took 20 steps, but he scored against young boys having taken 25. So he thought, clearly the more steps I take... He's thinking short-term. Clearly the more steps I take, the better. And that didn't work. So he has now um, gracefully admitted he needs to completely rethink his whole step routine. Fair I enough.
2: actually thought... I, and obviously, when somebody doesn't score a penalty, it's always their fault and it's never down the goalkeeper. But if there's one where you could actually say... The goalkeeper reacted well and did well.
1: Not that well, I, though. Gave the ball straight back to him. Mm, A great keeper he would saved. have put it somewhere else. Whatever.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, who remembers when we were all concerned about Mo Salah's goal scoring? No more, of course. He's now scored four in his last three. And Jurgen Klopp is using his whole squad, unlike last year. Cardiff lost four one at the weekend. Alison, how happy are you right now? I'm getting happier. Yeah. Happy with it. yes.
1: No, I mean it's. um I, I'm struggling to think of something original to say because I think it's all been said. But the key to why Liverpool might just win the title this season is that Klopp does have a much bigger squad and a squad with talent in it, and he seems pretty adept at keeping those players who aren't starting happy. And he talks beautifully about the players who come in and help him out. So I think Shakiri got some love this weekend. He he's great man manager. He's able to rotate. He's also very good at noting which of the stars might need a bit of a rest and noting who on the bench is ready to come in. So he's, he's, he's doing everything that he didn't do in his first couple of seasons. He's, he's doing it now. You asked me if I was happy, so you're going to get a sort of stream of consciousness <laughs> of reasons why I'm getting happier.
2: One word answer. Which Liverpool player do you think is hardest for Klopp to replace?
1: Uh, Virgil van Dyke.
2: Yep. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Correct.
1: Okay. You Gir- passed.
2: Gerard <laughs> de la scores a worldie as Watford beat up Huddersfield 3-0. But, Alison, what really excites many, including uh, uh, people who put the game together, is Watford's <laughs> midfield. Roberto Pereira, Abdoulaye Ducouré. Will freaking Hughes (laughs) no seriously listen since everybody can be you know in England international right now why not him that's a pretty special group
1: isn't it yeah it's special because it's really nicely balanced and I like the fact that uh, Will Hughes joined Watford and he did get that tag of maybe being a luxury player and he has admitted himself he had to learn how to mix the talent and the flair with just hard work tracking back it seems to be a theme of answers today. And he's done it. So they're 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 one of those midfields where they click and when one of them's trying to be imaginative, the others will be solid and they back each other up and they've got good work ethic, energy and vision, and they're a unit. And I, I admire any manager that can incorporate Will Hughes because I've, I've always been a fan of his his flair. And I haven't liked the way he sort of would often get substituted or seem to sort of slowly become flimsy during a match. He seems to have found that robustness that he needed.
2: Fun fact about Roberto Pereira, uh, which I haven't looked up to see if it's accurate, but somebody who knows their <laughs> stuff tweeted this the other day. Roberto Pereira, Manuel Lanzini and Eric Lamella were all on the same, according to this person, on the same river plate team managed by a guy named Diego Simeone who were relegated for the first time in their history a few years ago. Again, check it out. I haven't had time to do it. If it's true, I think it's pretty unbelievable.
1: (laughs) Next week, Gab will be reading facts from uh, Christmas crackers.
3: (laughs) Uh, Gab, how about one for you? Real Madrid pummeled in El Clasico. Should that meter be running in a taxi for Lopetegui?
2: It certainly looks that way. I mean... Not because of the defeat. I always think it's really, really stupid when clubs decide, well, if he doesn't win the next game, we'll sack him. In Lopetegui's case, um, I think the ultimate I- I- example that they're not with him is that Sergio Ramos, the club's unofficial director of football, and the guy who brought Lopetegui to the club, you know, came out afterwards and said something to the effect of, well, sometimes you know, being a great tactical manager isn't enough if you're also not a great man-manager. You know, speaking generalities, and I'm kind of like, all right, so why did you appoint this guy? But anyway, um, the, the funny thing about this game is Real Madrid were absolutely abject for the first 45 minutes. They could have been four or five goals down. Then, because Barcelona right now still have some issues, and of course, they didn't have Lionel Messi, um, they pulled one back, they hit the woodwork, Benzema wasted a sitter, and then Luis Suarez, who was magnificent in this game, scored, I think, one of the best-headed goals I've ever seen uh, to make it 3-1. And then it was lights out and it finished 5-1. But yes, Real Madrid board are due to meet this evening, I believe, as we record on a Monday morning. And most people expect Lopetegui to be gone. And among the candidates to replace him are former Chelsea manager Antonio Conte, former Wigan manager, and a couple others, Roberto Martinez. And if they can't get either, in-house solution is Santi Solari. Natalie, how about one for you? We spoke a few weeks ago about how Time's namesake, Paul Hurst, had won his first game as Ipswich manager and had maybe turned a corner. I can't believe we're talking about this guy and Ipswich again in less than a month. But how's that working out?
3: Well, we won't have to talk about him again with regards to Ipswich anyway, because he's been sacked. Yes, after the seventh defeat for Ipswich in midweek he has lost his job along with his assistants it was very difficult tenure for for Hurst it has to be said they won just the once they are bottom of the championship from my understanding he made a lot of changes at the club and made a lot of changes too quickly so it just didn't work out for him
2: so why Mr Evans made the wise choice?
3: well only time will tell because obviously everyone was very happy with his appointment, but it didn't quite work out. And now, having lost at uh, Millwall at the weekend, they have now appointed Paul Lambert as their new boss. So another Paul mm. at Paul the Lambert. helm. Paul Lambert,
2: yeah. Paul I, Lambert. I, I know who he is. Indeed. You're, you're familiar with Paul,
3: yes. him. And he'll also be familiar that he also used to manage Norwich, the East Anglian rivals. That's right. So that'll and be interesting. Holchester. And Coltester, Yes, he likes that, that East side.
2: <laughs> but then again... Paul Lambert, I think was a phenomenal, phenomenal and highly underappreciated footballer. But he also strikes me as somebody who really doesn't give to Christians about what? About rivalries in the past. I mean, I'm not saying he'd go and manage Glasgow Rangers one day, but if there's somebody who I don't think is going to be affected by the Norwich thing, I would assume it's him.
3: It's time now for our weekend predictions game, and we were level this season with four wins apiece a reminder how this all works we get one point for a correct result and three for a correct score line so let's start with the ones that we got wrong Gab uh, we both went for uh, Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds to beat Eitel Karanka's Forest but that one finished one all at Ellen Road in the championship
2: I'm sure Leeds probably deserved it more right
3: well, they came into it late on I'd mm-hmm. say
2: we both thought Arsenal would win at Crystal Palace silly us no such luck uh, for us or Our boy Unai Emery, 2-2 at Selhurst Park. We both correctly predicted a draw between Southampton and Newcastle. However, I was the only one who said it would be nil-nil. So that's 10 extra points for me.
3: (laughs) 10? I think you made that up. Okay, (laughs) three. However, at Old Trafford, I predicted Manchester United would beat Everton. Whereas, Gab, you went for the draw. And I also called the correct scoreline of 2-1. So that puts me in front.
2: My Evertonian friends would point out that it should have never been a penalty. Because Jusagay got the ball, but neither mm-hmm. here nor there. You know Clásico, where I do my finest work. <laughs> Natalie went for a narrow Barcelona win. Ha ha. It was anything but a narrow Barcelona win, but much better uh, than me because yeah. I lumped it all on Lopetegui and went for Real Madrid. Well, I guess I was kind of wrong there.
3: Uh, just a bit. Uh, meaning, I am victorious this week. the score is now to me. I'm in front for the first time, Gab. And don't forget, I was 4-1 down as well. Yes,
2: and the Paul Hurst of the predictions game. (laughs)
3: Uh, That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Alison Rudd, Henry Winter, Richard lloyd Parry, and Kay.
2: And Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and also on your smartphone or tablet. It's just £1 a week for an eight-week trial. Which works out to how many pounds for eight weeks, Natalie?
3: Eight pounds.
2: Very good. <laughs> I so don't
3: like quick maths.
2: <laughs> so it's a time subscription for more information.
3: And we'll be back on Thursday when we're going to be looking ahead to Arsenal versus Liverpool.
1: The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to
5: thetimes.co.uk.